it is good to see so many people back healthy. The Lord is bringing many people through this thing. We don't have anybody in any critical condition right now that I'm aware of, but yet some people still continue to catch this bug and, and are worshiping with us at home, and I just want to extend a special welcome to them. Uh, well, Christmas is over. And all the Christmas decorations around this church were taken down a couple weeks ago. Not at our house. We're still working on taking them down. Uh, we're a couple weeks behind because COVID pushed back our whole Christmas celebration a while. We didn't even open gifts until January 4th. So it was kind of weird. But on the bright side, we were one of the only families in Illinois to have a white Christmas. Yeah. It was great. So um, we just celebrated Christmas, and you probably remember during our Christmas celebration, one of the songs that we sang was, Joy to the World, the Lord is Come. And, and what a beautiful song, but as I mentioned maybe a couple weeks ago, when Isaac Watts wrote that song, he did not intend for it to be a Christmas song. He didn't write it about Christ's first coming as a babe. He wrote it about his second coming. And the, the words of verses 3 and 4 kind of bear that out. Uh, verse 3 says, No more let sins and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. Well, there's still thorns and there's still sin out there, I'm pretty sure. So that hasn't been fulfilled yet. And then verse 4 says, He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. This is speaking about when the Lord returns. Won't it be great when the Lord returns and gets rid of all the politicians and all the injustices? Yes. And he sets up his government on the earth and reigns and rules in perfect righteousness. Don't you look forward to that day? I mean, Dan and I were talking this week about just some of the things going on in the world. And our reaction was the same thing. Come, Lord Jesus. Dave told me this morning, maybe the Lord will come back before your message is over. Won't that be awesome? Yes. I would love it. Do you know that the newspaper industry actually has something that they call second coming type? It's like a great big font that they only use for the most momentous of occasions. It's been used a couple times before. Like when the Germans surrendered and the Japanese surrendered. When Kennedy was slain, they used second coming type. Well, when the Lord returns, it is going to be earth-shattering news. Someone had fun speculating about what some of the headlines might be in various media outlets. Here's some possibilities. Ladies Home Journal, lose 50 pounds by Judgment Day with our new Armageddon diet. Can get on that. Fortune Magazine, 10 ways you can profit from the apocalypse. Rolling Stone Magazine, the Grateful Dead reunion. They're coming back, <laughs> yeah. CNN, environmental nightmare unfolds. Fox News, Biden's last stand. <laughs> Sports Illustrated, game over. And Food Magazine, we're toast. <laughs> 
Well, that might be some of the headlines. It is going to rock the world, literally, when Christ returns. And are you looking forward to that? I mean, this will be the climax of God's redemptive work. It'll be the answer to the prayer that the church has prayed for over 2,000 years. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Billy Graham said this. He said, many times when I go to bed at night, I think to myself that before I awaken, Christ may come. But he probably didn't say it like that. He probably said, before I awaken, Christ will come. <laughs> like that, you know, in that big North Carolina voice. I can't, I can't do that very well. But how much do you think about Christ's coming? How much do you look forward to it? And this week, I've, I've really been looking forward to it, but I can't say that I always have. Um, a little over 25 years ago, I was planning an anniversary trip for Deborah and me. It would be our 10-year anniversary and I had never been, neither of us had ever been to the Caribbean. And like 10 years before when we were, you know, engaged and we're looking at those brides magazines, you know, that you got to kind of look at. They had all these pictures of these honeymoon places. And I saw the turquoise water and the white sand, powder sand beaches and the, and the coconut palms. And it's just a, a slice of heaven that's paradise I want to go. And so I planned this trip where we would go to St. Lucia and we would stay in this little beach house for five days and then for three days we would have our own private sailboat with our own captain, Captain Johnny Mon. And we would sail from St. Lucia to Martinique and sleep on the boat a couple nights. And I was so much looking forward to that that I actually said this to myself. I hope the Lord doesn't return before I get to take this trip. <laughs> I really said, how stupid was that? As if the Lord's return would not be better than my silly little trip to the Caribbean. Now, it was an awesome trip, but that only says how much more awesome it will be when the Lord returns. So, what about you? Are you anxiously awaiting the return of the Lord? Maybe you're looking forward to something more, like a graduation, a new car, a first job, a promotion, a baby, maybe a grandchild, maybe retirement. Maybe there's things that are occupying your mind, and you're actually, like I was, looking forward to those more than the Lord's return. Or... Maybe you feel like just the steady beat of time has you thinking the Lord might never return at all. Life just goes on. Well, this morning we have a chance to reset our thinking. And we're getting pretty close to the end of our series called Living Hope in First and Second Peter. In fact, you could say we're in the last days of our study <laughs> anyway. We're going to wrap it up next week. And this morning... The message title is, Make No Mistake, Christ is Coming. And we're going to be in 2 Peter chapter 3. We'll cover verses 1 through 10. And I think you'll see the text pointing our attention to three things. One, look back the truth of the word. Two, look out the lie of the world. And then three, look ahead to the day of the Lord. And so we're going to cover those three this morning. I want to start by reading through the text, and then we'll dig into it in more detail. And I'm reading, as always, from the NIV 1984 translation. So, here we go. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them 
as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through the apostles. First of all, you must understand that in these last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of waters and by water. By these waters also, the world of the time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with the roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. This is God's word preserved and spoken to us. So I want to start, I want us to look back at the truth of the word. And we'll see this in verses 1 and 2. Peter begins by saying, then now his second letter to these scattered, persecuted believers. And he says in verse 1, I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. Wholesome thinking. Does it surprise you that he doesn't say to stimulate you toward good deeds and godliness? Because he's been talking about godliness throughout these two letters. But here he says wholesome thinking. Do you suppose that maybe there's a connection between how we think and how we act? Absolutely. So you, uh, you know, advertisers and marketing people, they know that if they can get you to think a certain way, you're more likely to act a certain way to buy what it is that they're putting before you. And so there's the saying, and you're, I've said it a number of times, and you're probably familiar with it, sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. There's a connection between the way we think and the way we act. And so here, Peter starts by focusing on the way we think. That's his purpose for these letters. Listen to Romans 12 too. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. That's talking about our actions. It says, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. By the renewing of your mind. So if we're going to do the right things, it needs to start by thinking the right way. Because those right thoughts lead to right actions. Here's the thing. When it comes to godliness, both our victories and our defeats will begin in the mind. And so Peter writes this to stimulate his readers to wholesome thinking. And to stimulate us toward wholesome thinking. So let's see what he what he, what he gets some thinking about specifically. And we'll find that in verse 2. 
He says, I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and by the command given by our Lord and Savior through the apostles. So in contrast to the deceptive unholy words of the false teachers of the day and the scoffers, Peter points them to the truthful, dependable words of the holy prophets and the apostles, the Lord speaking through the apostles. Where do we find these words? Well, for us, we know the Old Testament and the New Testament, but what about them? Well, we do know the, the Old Testament was completed and in wide circulation 200 years before Jesus came. So they had that. But what about the New Testament? How did they get the words of the apostles, the Lord speaking to them through the apostles? Well, Peter's two letters are part of the New Testament. They're part of Scripture. But it's even more than that. Now, this, these events occurred around 67 AD. This is only about 34 years after Christ's resurrection. So did they have the New Testament? They had these letters, these two letters from Peter. But they actually had more than that. Take a look down at what we'll cover next time in verse 15. Peter writes, bear in mind that our... Our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all of his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. They not only had the letters from Peter, they had some, at least, of the letters from Paul. And they're referred to as scriptures. They were already identified as God's holy, inspired, and errant word. And history records that all of Paul's letters were complete before 2 Peter was written. So they may have very well had all of Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Philemon, Galatians, Philippians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, Ephesians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus. They may have had some or all of these writings because they were circulated amongst the church. So they had the Old Testament prophets and they had the New Testament word of the Lord spoken through the apostles. And Peter says, I want to call your attention to what they said. What did they say? Well, the Bible has a lot to say about the second coming of Jesus. One out of every 30 verses in the Bible either speaks or alludes to it. One out of 30. There are eight times more verses about Christ's second coming than about his first coming. Imagine that. Jesus himself referred to it 21 times and 50 times we were told to be ready for it. So there's a lot in here about the second coming, the return of Christ. And Peter wants these believers to have the right mindset, to have wholesome thinking, so that they can act appropriately. So he tells them first, look back at the truth of God's word. And then secondly, look out for the lie of the world. We're going to see that in verses 3 through 7. It says, first of all, you must understand that in these last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming that he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. This, is, this idea 
that the scoffers are putting forward has a modern equivalent. It's something we know as uniformitarianism. Have you ever heard that word? Uniformitarianism. From a geological standpoint, I'm gonna walk through what uniformitarianism means and then contrast it to another school of thought. So uniformitarianism has two general parts. First of all, it says that the Earth's features are the result of gradual natural processes over long periods of time. They would say that things like the Grand Canyon was formed by that little river over millions and millions of years. And secondly, the processes that are observed in the present are the key to understanding the past. That's uniformitarianism. And by contrast, there's what's called catastrophism. Catastrophism says that many of the Earth's features were formed suddenly by large abrupt changes or what we would call catastrophes. So again, a uniformitarian would look at something like the Grand Canyon and say, that was formed at, based on the volume of water, which if you spread the Colorado River over the width of the canyon, it'd be about an inch deep. And at an inch deep, it would have taken millions of years to dig that thing out. Besides, not even including the fact that the water would have had to flow uphill 3,000 feet to get started at the top. But anyway, they look at it and say, this happened slowly over many, many, many years. Catastrophism says, no, there was another event that occurred and caused this suddenly. So, one of the leading proponents of uniformitarianism was a man named Charles Lyell. Or Lyell. And he published this three-volume three book in 1830 called Principles of Geology. And it was a very influential book. One of the people that he had a great influence on was a man named Charles Darwin. Darwin had a copy of Lyell's book with him when he traveled to the Galapagos Islands in 1835. And it had a role in the rise of Darwin's evolutionary theory. See, Darwin reasoned that if there'd been plenty of time for the mountains to rise up and erode away, then there'd also been plenty of time for millions of these species to arise and evolve by natural processes and either evolve into new species or go extinct. And so all of this too, he said, happens slowly over very long periods of time. Guess what? Suddenly science had freed mankind from the need for a creator and from a God who intervenes in the history of mankind. No longer was that needed because with uniformitarianism, Everything happens gradually over long periods of time with only natural causes. Nothing supernatural. There's no outside intervention. It's a closed system. So it's this kind of thinking that leads to the heretical view that you see in verse 4 where it says, they will say, where is this coming that he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Just uniform. Time just keeps marching on. Nothing significant and supernatural happening. But, look at verse 5. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. That's speaking of the creation. Creation suddenly by the power 
of an omnipotent God, so powerful that he spoke it into existence. Now, a term used to describe creation is ex nihilo, ex nihilo. And, and that means creation from nothing. So when you think of creation, the raw materials didn't exist. It wasn't even an empty space that God created things into. There was no space. There was nothing but God himself. Creation, ex nihilo. Now, right away, there's a problem. Not for the creationist, but for the naturalist. The one who believes in the formation of everything through natural physical processes and denies anything supernatural. The problem is science. See, the first law of thermodynamics says that through natural processes, matter can, and energy can neither be created nor destroyed. It can simply transfer from one state to another. So, if everything must be explained through natural processes, where did the energy and where did the matter come from that everything we know is created out of? Well, in trying to explain this, naturalists have to turn to a ridiculous presupposition. Are you ready for it? Here it comes. It's just always been here. <laughs> How's that for a theory of origin? It's always been here. In other words, it didn't have an origin. That's their theory of origin. Because they have no way to explain its appearance. Now, if it didn't have an origin, where did it come from? So they, they realize that this is an absurd presupposition and they scramble for ways to explain the existence of energy and matter through natural processes. Now, he's since passed away a few years ago, but in 1996, Professor Stephen Hawking, one of the most brilliant men, uh, he said this, quote, all the evidence seems to indicate that the universe has not existed forever, but that it had a beginning. He says, this is probably the most remarkable discovery of modern cosmology. <laughs> wow, that it had a beginning. <laughs> I think God's been saying that for thousands of years, amen? They're catching up. So how then does Hawking, a diehard naturalist, explain how everything began? Follow me on this. He says that prior to the Big Bang, all of the universe was compressed into something about the size of a walnut. The earth, the sun, the stars, the galaxies. A hundred billion galaxies with a hundred billion stars each compressed into something about that big. And... He says that due to the infinite density, quote, all the laws of physics would have been broken down, including the law of the conservation of matter, the first law of thermodynamics. Let me translate. You can now make the theory say anything or do anything you want because all the natural laws are broken down at the same time. If you take away the natural laws, what do you have left? Something supernatural. So that's the conclusion they've arrived at because they don't have a natural explanation for the beginning. Isn't that what they accuse creationists of? Resorting to something supernatural? Well, that's what Hawking's is saying it is now. Well, 
Here's the thing. As research continues to pour in, naturalists are slowly and reluctantly arriving at the conclusion that there is no natural way to explain the origins of the universe. There is not one. But verse 5 says that these scoffers deliberately forget this. Okay, that's not that they can't understand it. They deliberately forget. It's a conscious decision of the mind. It's not that they don't have enough reason to believe in God's creation. God said he's made it abundantly clear so that men are without excuse, Romans 1.20. But they deliberately ignore that. They choose not to believe. George Wald was an American scientist and an evolutionist and a winner of the Nobel Peace Prize in 1967. Listen to what he said. When it comes to the origin of life, there are only two possibilities, creation or spontaneous generation. There is no third way. Spontaneous generation was disproved 100 years ago, but that leads us only to one other conclusion, that of supernatural creation. We cannot accept that on philosophical grounds. Therefore, we choose to believe the impossible, that life arose spontaneously by chance. Wow, what a statement. Scientists are actually overlooking science and believing the impossible because of an ideological predisposition that there can be no God. It's deliberate. It's intentional. And by the way, these are the people who are writing the school books that our children are studying in, in elementary school, high school, college. We choose instead to ignore the science and believe the impossible because we just cannot accept the idea of a creator God. Why would anyone deliberately forget that God created the heavens and the earth? Why would they do it? The answer is in our text. Look back up at verse 3. See it there? It says, to follow their own evil desires. That's why. They don't want God telling them what to do. So they push him aside. It's more convenient to just deny him and live their life the way they want. So the first evidence Peter presents against the idea of uniformitarianism is creation in verse 5. The second is the flood in verse 6. Take a look, it says, By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. The account of Noah's flood and the ark, it's, it's well ingrained into our culture. But if we're not careful, some have reduced it to little more than a children's story. You have little Fisher-Price Ark and little animals and everything, and that's okay. I think it's a neat teaching aid for children, but some people don't let it go beyond there. It's just a little children's story with a nice moral ring to it, and they leave it there. But the flood is an actual historical event, and it greatly reshaped the surface of the earth and the biosphere that we live in. It's the epitome of catastrophism. There are significant global evidences for the flood. I'm going to just cover a couple of them quickly here. Number one, you have sedimentary rock layers all over the world that are smooth and flat across vast 
vast distances, which suggests they were laid down rapidly. If that first layer was laid down and the second layer laid down a million years later, guess what? It would be pot-marked and tore up, but it's not. It's smooth. And some of the material for these layers was transported from great distances away. For instance, the sediment you find in Arizona had its origins in the northern United States and Canada. How did it get there? In some cases, you have trees extending through multiple layers that were supposedly laid down over millions of years. They call this polystrate fossils. How did that happen? In many places, you have bending of these sedimentary layers. Look at these pictures. These are sedimentary layers that were folded while the ground was obviously still wet and pliable. Otherwise, they would have crumbled. And we find these all over. You have trillions of dead organisms trapped within these sedimentary layers, producing an extensive fossil record. Not even the delicate tissue structures like the organs of these fish had time to decompose. Look at, the, look at the wings on that dragonfly or the leaves on the fern. Fossils can only happen when plants and animals are buried rapidly under tremendous pressure and the near complete absence of, of oxygen. If you go bury a goldfish in your backyard or you bury your leaves that fell down this past fall, Guess what? They're not going to turn into a fossil. They're going to decay. God's creation is very efficient. It recycles everything. Almost either a scavenger will come get it or microorganisms will break it down and it'll turn back into soil again. It decays. Fossils take very specific circumstances in order to be created. What's more, you'll find these fossils fossils of sea creatures on the tops of every mountain range in the world, including the Himalayas. There's shells on top of them. There's fish fossils on top of the Himalayas. You have widespread erosion that occurred as these waters soaked the continents and the continents lifted and the water ran off. You'll find evidence of this all over as well. This is a picture of Monument Valley in the desert southwest. I've spent a lot of time flying over this area. It's, it's awesome. This was not the result of a little river meandering through the region over millions of years. There isn't even a river there. Look at it. It's a desert. This is huge volumes of earth moved by a tremendous volume of water washing across the continent. Here's a recent discovery in 2017. Scientists discovered remnants of a temperate rainforest that once thrived in Antarctica. Under hundreds of feet of ice, they're finding these fossils and this evidence of this, this warm rainforest. This is 450 miles from the South Pole. A tremendous change in the biosphere. There is an abundance of evidence of a global flood for anyone willing to consider it. Let me give you an illustration to summarize the difference between uniformitarianism and catastrophism. Imagine a student studies archaeology in the States and he graduates with his degree. And so he goes over to Europe to study the ruins of a building. And he watches it very closely for two weeks. And at the end of that two weeks, he says, based on the observed rate of decay, 
This building is over 40,000 years old. No, it's not. It's a little over 100 years old. It was hit with the bomb in World War II. <laughs> okay? That's the difference. But see, observing the processes in the present is the key to understanding the past for uniformitarianism. They go, wow, based on the rate of rust and breakdown, this took tens of thousands of years for the building to dissolve into what we see here. No, there was a great catastrophe. See, that's the difference. And that's what Peter, through the influence of the Holy Spirit, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is pointing us to in this text. Again, there's an abundance of evidence for a global flood for anyone willing to consider it. But don't take my word for it. Listen to the words of Jesus. He not only confirmed the flood, but he compared it to his second coming. Let me read you Matthew 24, verses 37 through 39. Jesus says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man, the second coming. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them away. He says it's going to be that same way now. When I come back, people are going to be eating and partying and having a great time with no clue of the disaster that awaits them. It's going to be a catastrophe of biblical proportions. The day of the Lord. It's verse 7 says, by the same word, the same word that spoke through the prophets, it spoke through the apostles. It says, by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Ungodly people don't want you to believe that. They want you instead to buy into their immoral agenda. That stuff didn't happen. That creation. Darwin proved it. It's just natural causes. That flood never happened. And what's more, you can't depend a book on a book that says it did. There is no coming judgment. That's hogwash, they would say. Well, let's look ahead at the day of the Lord in verses 8 through 10. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Well, what? these verses tell us first of all is that God doesn't experience time like you and I do. He can see all of time at a single glance. He knows the end from the beginning. Or he can choose to dwell on one single moment for a very long time because God is not subject to time. He's outside of time in the realm that scripture calls eternity. God is eternal. He inhabits eternity. I heard about a man who was praying to God, and he said, God, can I ask you a question? And God said, sure, go ahead. So the man asked, God, what is a million years to you? And God said, a million years is like a second. The man said, oh. He goes, God, what is a million dollars to you? And God said, a million dollars is like a penny. And so the man said, God, can I have a penny? And God said, sure. 
Give me a second. God doesn't experience time like we do. Just because Christ hasn't returned in 2,000 years does not mean he's not going to return. In fact, to him, that last 2,000 years has been like two days. That's what it's saying. It's not a long time. What has he been waiting for? Why hasn't he come back already? He's waiting for more unbelievers to be saved, is what it says. He's patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. The founder of Earth Day, Gaylord Nelson, he said, the fate of the living planet is the most important issue facing mankind. Is that true? The fate of the living planet? The most important issue? Listen to what Numbers 35, verse 33 says. It says, this is God, do not pollute the land where you live. Bloodshed pollutes the land. And then in, in Hosea chapter 4, there is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There's only cursing, lying, and murder, stealing, and adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Because of this, the land mourns, and all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the fish of the sea are dying. Well, God's not talking about carbon emission here. He's talking about another form of pollution, sin. He said this is the reason for the breakdown, the death of the environment that we see. It's sin. Now, I dug up some statistics from the FBI and they estimate that there are, in the United States annually, 1.3 million violent crimes. And it includes over 17,000 murders, 135,000 rapes, 309,000 robberies, and 809,000 aggravated assaults. And then on top of that, there are an estimated 7,700,000 property crimes, such as burglary, larceny, and vehicle theft. That's over 9 million crimes, and that's just what gets reported in the United States alone in one year. How do you feel when you hear that? Oh, I mean, doesn't it make you hurt? Remember it talked about Lot, his righteous soul was tormented when he saw the behavior of the world around him? I mean, it's like tormenting. Oh, God. Well, how do you think God feels about it? If it hurts you that much, think how it hurts a holy, perfectly righteous God. It hurts. But verse 9 says, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The New King James Version says, he is long-suffering with you. Patient, long-suffering. And the word for patient or long-suffering is a, is a Greek word. And I'll put it up here for you. It's macrothumio. And it's made up of two words. Macro, like big, not micro, little. Macro, big. And thumos, thumos means, means anger or great anger or burning. I thought I put it up there. I didn't. Uh-oh, got behind. These two words together, get them up here. These two words together 
say this. If you put them together, it says the meaning is a big burning anger. That's what this is. Like a big burning anger. And what it says is that God has an amazing capacity to store up well-deserved righteous anger. But it won't last forever. He's long-suffering. He's willing to take that hurt from all of that sin and hold on to it to store it up. But he has a righteous anger and wrath and it will spill over. There has to be judgment or God is not just. It's not a flaw of God that he's going to judge sin. It's his character. Without judgment, there is no justice. So he's holding back right now because he cares that much for those who are being saved. But there will come a tipping point. Look at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with the roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. See, the day of the Lord is when God will once again dramatically and radically intervene in the lives of mankind and in our world history as he unleashes judgment upon the earth. It won't be business as usual. It'll be a catastrophe of unimaginable proportions. And it'll bring great distress, distress that the world has never known before, Scripture says. Listen to how the, the prophets and apostles speak of it. Isaiah 13 says, Wail, wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It'll come like destruction from the Almighty. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. New Testament, apostles, 1 Thessalonians 5, while people are saying peace and safety, Destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. See, he says it'll come like a thief. You won't be expecting it. It'll happen that quickly. Just like the flood. There's a big catastrophe coming. An ungodly world is thumbing their nose at God. Where's the promise of his coming? Nothing's changed for over 2,000 years. There's no creator. There was no judgment in the flood. And there's no second coming. Let us get on with our lives and live in peace and safety. That's what the world says. But they couldn't be more wrong. When that day comes, here's the thing. There'll be no last minute bargaining. The time for repentance will be over. And judgment will ensue. Some people think, well, I'll wait till, you know, some people say, I'll wait till I'm on my deathbed and I'll confess my sin and give my life to the Lord. But until then, I'll live my life like I want. When that day comes, it'll be immediate. And there'll be no time for bargaining and repentance. Your time is up. It's over. God says, today is the day of salvation. There's an urgency to it. It's foolish to wait any longer. Verse 10 says, the elements would be destroyed like fire. We're going to talk more about that next time. So I'll skip over that for now. But it's only after this time of judgment that the second coming will occur. 
when Christ will return to the earth and set up his earthly kingdom. This is the second coming we look forward to. Now you might wonder, well then, do we have to go through this great tribulation first to get to the second coming? I mean, are we even going to survive that thing? Well, the Bible suggests that the church will be taken away before the tribulation and rescued from the time of trial. I've cited some verses on the slide there that you can note. And it helps to differentiate between two events, the coming of Christ for his church and the coming of Christ with his church. Two events. When he comes for his church, that's called the rapture. The dead in Christ are raised and those who are alive at the time are brought up together with him in the sky, in the air. Christ doesn't come to the earth. He comes to the air and he gathers his saints to him. And then another event, he comes with his church to the earth. That's at the end of the time of tribulation. That's the second coming of the Lord that we look forward to. When he will set up his kingdom and he will reign on the earth for a thousand years. At the end, there'll be another final judgment of those who still refuse to repent. And then the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus said, behold, I am making all things new. Just as mankind's sin brought a curse, not only on mankind, but on all of creation, so God's salvation will restore those who believe along with all of creation. Romans 8 says the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Behold, I'm making all things new. God will restore mankind and creation. If you want more details on this, we can't go into all the details this morning, but let me point you to a couple resources that can help you with more information on creation, the flood, the end times. On our website, if you go into the messages tab, you'll find a couple series there. One of them is called The Big Picture, and the second message here is Creation and the Fall, and it gives many more details of the creation account. And then another series, In the Beginning, from the book of Genesis. There's two messages there, Judgment and Rescue, part one and part two. It covers Genesis 5 through 7 in the flood account. And a lot more details on that. And then finally, from our series called Foundations, The End Times. And that gives a, a kind of a chronology, a timeline, as best as we can understand it from Scripture, of those end time events and how they will unfold. The, the website has both audio and the, and the PowerPoint notes. Well, we've got to wrap this up. This text in 2 Peter is so important. It's so important. God gives it to us both as a warning and an encouragement to stimulate us to wholesome right thinking, to get our minds straightened out on the truth of God's word, based on the truth of God's word. Here's his message. Make no mistake. Christ is coming. He is coming back. For some, that will mean a great and final judgment. It'll mean destruction. For others, it'll, it'll mean the very goal of their faith, the thing that they've been longing for, for Christ to come and reign in righteousness. Maybe you're one of the scoffers. Verse 9 says, God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Have you ever thought that maybe the Lord is waiting on you 
Romans says in chapter 11 that he's waiting until the full number of Gentiles come in. It's like there's a counter there. He knows the number and he says when it hits this number, game over. (laughs) The the ungodly are toast. That's going to set in motion his end times. It's a counter. Maybe you or someone you know or someone you love is holding us all back. But God is patient. See, he doesn't. What if he would have come back 50, 100 years ago? Most of us would not be in Christ, would we? He wants all to come to repentance. He's long-suffering. He stores up his righteous anger, big burning anger for a long time. But it will spill over, and it has to. He won't hold back forever. So if you've never given your life to the Lord You can do that this morning. Let me beg you to do that this morning. Today is the day of salvation, God says. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you that you haven't left us to wonder about who you are or what you've done. But you've you've recorded it for us in your word. You've given us instruction so that we might understand, so that we might have wholesome thinking. And God, we need that because this fallen world wants us to fall for their lies. They want us to believe you're not real, that you're not the creator, that you never came to die for our sin, that you're not coming back to take us to be with you, and you're certainly not coming back to judge the ungodly world. But God... These things are true and you're patient and you're long-suffering and you desire that everyone would be saved. And that is good news of great joy for all people. God, I know there's some listening that haven't turned to you in faith. They're still under your judgment and yet you're patient with them just as you were patient with me. God, I pray that today they would consider their sinfulness and consider the truth of your word. And that they would confess their sin and surrender their life to you. To turn to you in faith so they might be forgiven and reconciled. So that they might sit under your blessing and not under your judgment any longer. God, I pray that would happen today. And I thank you for your love and your grace and your patience. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Let's worship.